Ephemeral is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. There's nothing quite like seeing a good movie on the big screen. If you've ever watched something like 2001 A Space Odyssey in a theater, you'll understand how visceral it can be to experience that level of visual and auditory immersion and how different it is from watching at home. Theaters have always been an important part of the film industry. In the early 1900s, companies like Paramount and Columbia helped to open the first picture palaces opulent and decadent houses for exhibiting film. The 1980s saw a huge boom in movie-going culture as theater chains expanded the accessibility of movies across the country. But recently, the COVID pandemic and the rise of streaming services have threatened the existence of movie theaters altogether. So now, where do movie theaters fit into our modern culture? Today, producer Trevor Young walks us through the turbulent but grand history of movie theaters, and visits one special theater in Los Angeles, which still thrives on independent cinema. Last year, I had the opportunity to move to Los Angeles. As you probably know, we're huge film nerds here on the ephemeral team, and LA is a huge film town. So I was excited to visit all the local theaters around here. But what I wasn't expecting was just how opulent and dense with historical meaning all of the mainstay theaters here really are. Most of them have been around for decades, some for over a century. They're full of life, and the people in them carry a genuine love for film. And especially coming out of COVID, it feels like all the moviegoers at these theaters agree. This is a special event. You know what you can't get from sitting at home watching, say, a movie like The Long Goodbye with Elliot Gould? Okay, Eileen, what was Marty Augustine doing here the other night? How did you know? I followed him here from my place. He dropped by to have a word or two with me, and I was just uh, curious to see who else he wanted to talk to. It turned out to be you. You can't get Elliot Gould sitting in the seat across the aisle from you watching The Long Goodbye. He is literally sitting three feet from me. I mean, come on. That's one of my favorite movie-going experiences. I'm like, oh my God, it's Elliot Gould. This is Jules McLean, Director of Operations at the New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles. The New Bev, as it's often called, is owned by filmmaker Quentin Tarantino. He bought the historic theater in 2007 and has since devoted the theater to screening revival cinema. Jules is a personal friend of Quentin and joined the New Bev in 2014. And her job can be a little intense. At the New Beverly, kind of a jack-of-all-trades, but I do oversee everything. I communicate with Quentin a lot. I'm the one person that has an open line of communication for him. We get programming for him. We bounce ideas off. I'm lucky that I have a good team in place because you would not imagine everything it is to run a theater. There's booking, there's establishing a relationship with filmmakers and distributors, studios, film collectors, because we're a film-only house. There's the day-to-day stuff of running a business. You need permits, health permits. You have to, like, take into consideration pricing, because everything is now skyrocketing. 
navigating through COVID waters. But Jules says it's all worth it. To her, movie theaters like the New Bev are the most valuable cultural spaces we have. Two things, one, it's an escape for me, and the other thing is the communal aspect. Just this past Saturday, went and saw Live and Let Die, one of our matinees. Hey, easy, Charlie, let's get there in one piece. Charlie. Big James Bond fan here. And afterwards, you know, people are buzzing, stayed in the lobby. I mean, people are staying in the lobby for like a half an hour. Finally, we had to kind of shoo people away because we had another show coming in. But I remember one of our regulars, Sarah, we were talking. She's all like, I've made a lot of friends standing in line at the New Beverly. This place is magic. I don't know, you're not going to get that experience sitting at home on your couch. you got to get out. It doesn't matter if it's at the New Beverly, another theater. And certainly we support independent theaters the most. But even if you get out and you go to the bigger chain theaters, just get out of your house, go to the movie, see it with an audience. Oh, my gosh. Live and Let Die, wonderful action pack, but it also had its moments of comedy and just being in a theater, a packed theater, and, and sharing laughter with somebody. It's just, it really is, Sarah's right, it's magical. Jules told me that the new Bev reminded her of the kind of theater she used to go to growing up. When I was, I'm going to say five, but I think I was actually six, my mom took me to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids. Butch Cassidy's Hole in the Wall Gang struck Butch Cassidy's Hole in the Wall Gang, that's me. You want Harvey to do your planning for you? You want him to do your thinking for you? You want him to run things? You can shut up now, News. Well, not yet till I get the good part, Butch. And before y'all be judgy, everyone, I really wanted to see Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. She just didn't pick that out of the blue. The next movie was The Great Gatsby, and I think I was seven, and I wasn't very into it. You want too much. I love you now. Isn't that enough? I can't help what's past. I did love him once, but I loved you too. And then we stood in line for, like, Star Wars. Like, my mom rocked as far as, like, movies go, and that just really formed my sensibilities. That's a movie-going experience. I just, I mean... Decades later, I remember that. I take my nieces to the theater. I mean, I just, I hope people continue to go out to the movies. One unique thing about the new Beverly is that they only show film, meaning actual analog reels and no digital film whatsoever. It's not easy, but we know a lot of collectors, a lot of the studios, in fact, the majority of them have opened up their repertory. They do lend out prints. A lot of times there's cost involved in that, in the shipping aspect. Sometimes the archives are local and we can go pick them up. And luckily, we actually went back through all our programming. And one of the reasons Quentin got the theater in the first place is that he has a very large film print collection. Over half the titles that we play come from his collection. So that's a way for him to share it with audiences. Because actually we had to do that for like tax purposes too. It's like... Oh, no, no, no. He really does play his prints at that theater. But it's not just an arbitrary choice. The new Bev uses real film for a reason. Seeing actual film. They've done studies, and I forget if it was Harvard or Yale, but the brain's reaction to 24 frames per second, you have a different emotional connection. Digital, very flat, 35 offers a different texture. Your brain takes it in differently. You have a different emotional reaction. I mean, that's a big part of what's different 
nowadays too because it's all digital projection and and this and that which by the way I'll still go to see digital films I'm not poo-pooing them if I have a choice darn right like I waited forever to see Nightmare Alley because I know we were going to show it and I wanted to see it on film oh I see an older man oh the boy hates him oh the boy would love to be loved but he hates that man he Death. Death and the wish of death. As you can tell, Jules has a deep love for all things cinema, and she's very attuned to the vast history of theaters in LA and across the country. So we thought she'd be the perfect person to help us learn a little bit more about theaters, or as they were originally called, picture palaces. The 1910s, the 1920s, a lot of the older theaters were actually live performances converted to a movie theater once the talkies came about. Early film studios like Paramount or Warner Brothers were deeply involved in the movie palaces. They were, of course, the only venues for their product. Once they got a little bit of his success and the studios operated a lot of them, they just kept getting bigger, seating like 2,500, 3,000. Downtown Los Angeles, wonderful like two mile stretch of just like picture palace after picture palace after picture palace. One thing most people either forget about or don't realize is that there was a whole show before the film back then. You'd have the news, ads, a cartoon or short film. Television highlights of the news of yesteryear. That's something you might also see at the New Beverly. Cartoons were a big draw in the 30s. Serials, those were a big draw. You'd package serials and cartoons and maybe a comedy short, and that's their entertainment for the weekend. I go on private forums and stuff like that, and I'm always looking for cool things, because we will play newsreels from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. In Gary, Indiana, struck mills are idle behind picket lines composed of women. Cartoons, we're big on cartoons. When Quentin took it over, he really wanted to kind of mimic what happened in the past, which was you would play like a tag, a little like kind of commercial or something cool for like Coca-Cola. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Then you'd play like a short, you know, a Three Stooges short or, you know, a Bugs Bunny cartoon. And then it's like trailers and trailers for either up and coming films or trailers that thematically fit what you're showing that night. And then you go into the actual feature. And and that's what they did back then. It was a different movie going experience. I know you get the trailers when you go and see your first run films and stuff, but you don't, it's not quite the same. One other interesting thing is that most theaters did not have concessions back then. I don't know how they survived. I forget what decade concessions came into, but can you imagine going to the movies and not having concessions now? As an exhibitor, I'm like, oh oh gosh, we would not be in business if we had to close our concessions. I have to have my popcorn. But by far, the most striking feature of the old picture palaces was the architecture. Stunning, absolutely stunning. I can tell you that a lot of thought went into them. You can tell by the little decorations, very ornate, very thematic. You had two theaters in Los Angeles that had an Egyptian theme, and they were two different architects. 
You know, you see Middle Eastern themes. You just see a lot of Art Deco themes. I would love to go back in time and just kind of sit in on some of the planning and what people thought. But again, studios were behind a lot of the big picture palaces, so they could throw a lot of money into them. And they wanted to appeal to a wider class of people. They did want the theaters to reflect that. I asked Jules to mention a few examples and to tell us what her favorites are. Believe it or not, Radio City Music Hall, which does not show film anymore, I don't think. The Music Box in Chicago. There's, you know, a handful that are still around in downtown Los Angeles. The Secret Movie Club is out of the Million Dollar Theater in downtown Los Angeles. And then there's other venues that are open. We've had premieres of Quentin's films at a couple of the, the theaters. I really like the Metrograph in New York. I love the Bell Court in Nashville. You know, I was a big fan of the Cinerama Dome and even the Arclight Complex in general because I thought they had, you know, really nice big theaters. I do like when I travel. I like to see the independent movie theaters. I like to experience them. I'll tell you, a wonderful one is the Hollywood Theater in, in Portland, Oregon. Amazing, gorgeous, wonderful programming. I got a little tour and everything. There's fun little basement hangout, you know, and... I get kind of jealous of theaters like the Hollywood because they have so much room and can do so much. And the guy that runs it, oh, here's two free drink tickets. I'm like, oh, wow. And it's like, yeah, we don't get drink tickets at the New Beverly. We don't even serve alcohol and stuff. So I get a little, a little jealous. But, I mean, theaters are just wonderful. And they're in every town. And it's, yay, they're magic. Jules says that back in the day, going to the movie theater was a big deal. Throughout the country, I think they were packed. That was your night out. You're getting dressed up to go to these places now. Part of it, yeah, you want to be seen. Dressed up, drive your car there. Maybe it was the equivalent to when we go to maybe to the Pantages in Los Angeles to go see Hamilton or something, or if you go to Broadway. We would have more like the Douglas Fairbanks action, you know, Buccaneers. I also think a lot of the comedies, you have the Harold Lloyds. Max and comedies, and I think a lot of like shorter films that are just they're lost now. Even if they were found, is there an audience for them? I I don't know. So because the studios largely funded the movie palaces back then, the theaters were a lot more strict about what they could or couldn't play. I know there wasn't a lot of like cross pollination. So if it was you know a Warner Brothers theater, they only played Warner Pictures. There were studios that didn't have theaters, and I think it was a tougher time for them to get in into some of the established studio-owned. But, I mean, that broke up, and I think that was probably good. There certainly were. I mean, studios were cranking it out in the heydays, 40s, 50s, absolutely. If they made money, they were going to produce them. Some not so great, but you can say that for today's films, too. The New Beverly did not yet exist by this point, so it's not technically a picture palace. But its history is interesting nonetheless. Yeah, New Beverly is built in 29. So it was originally, I believe, a candy store. Then somebody sold wine out of it. And it eventually became Slapsy Maxie's, which was a live club. In 1950, it became a movie theater. And there's been one ever since, but it's had so many iterations and so many different names. It's kind of crazy. It was even split 
into a twin theater called the Riviera Capri. Crazy. I can't imagine it now because I still think it's a little small. It was the Eros, the Riviera Capri, the Beverly, the New Yorker. It's an adult theater, as we all know, kind of referenced in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What's going on at the Dirty Movie Place? Well, they're having a premiere. Dirty movies have premieres? Yeah, they're fun. Which is really cool. If you watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the New Beverly, you got that in-joke. Been home to a lot of different theaters and made many people happy. She says theaters like this started to become more common in the 50s. Instead of the grand picture palaces, now we were getting more small, single-screen theaters. They popped up because people were moving to the suburbs. You know, you can build a giant picture palace. They're neighborhood theaters, so I think they serve their neighborhoods. But soon, big companies would take notice of the success of movie theaters, and they would create the franchises we know today. Chains that all but doomed the independent theaters of the last century. These days, the most common movie theaters are the chains. AMC, Cinemark, Regal, and so on. But before these, in the early days, the studios themselves were the franchises. They were up during the picture palaces. You had your Lowell's and your Warner's and stuff, so you saw them. But when the studios were told that they couldn't be exhibitors, there were opportunities for corporations Probably 60s, they really started getting going. 70s, probably their heydays, 70s and 80s, and then the slide began, unfortunately. Theater chains radically shifted the movie business in the 80s. Now, you had these big buildings with a dozen or more screens, showing every available movie, usually more than once a day. While Jules prefers the older art house single-screen theaters, she understands why these types of theaters became popular. There's your economic aspect as an exhibitor where you're not saddled if a movie bombs. You open it in your big 300-seat theater and it bombs, you move it over to the 50-seater and you can put something in where you will make money. As far as the movie-going experience, it's just like, now it's a lot of options. I want to go see the 210 show of so-and-so, but I missed it. But look, at 2.30, I can make this. So it's not a complete wash. I don't have to get back in my car. I don't have to kill two hours to the next showing. As a teenager or as a young college person, multiplexes were great because you could see uh, two or three movies a day and only pay once. (laughs) But Jules says we lost a lot of value when we transitioned away from the neighborhood theaters. There's more things like texturally. If you go to the Vista, you have the manager that has worked there for decades, Victor, and he'll greet you and you have interactions and you can, you know, it's your neighborhood theater. I I live in that neighborhood, so I always run into friends there. But you don't have that kind of interaction at an AMC and and it's so big and you don't like stand in a lobby and, and talk about the film afterwards. You don't like meet people and say, hey, let's go get coffee over here and talk about the film. You go, you see the movie, it's great, uh, you know what you're getting, and you go home. Go someplace like New Beverly, you know, The Vista, The Arrow, uh, Los Feliz 3. It's just a different experience. It's more of a movie-going experience. 
I don't know if I can put my finger quite on it, but it just seems a little bit more sterile at an AMC, shall we say? Of course, the biggest impact of the chain theaters was the eventual closure of indie theaters. For the older single-screen theaters and picture palaces, companies like AMC signaled near-certain death. I don't know how a single-screen theater makes it. I have zero idea. We've come close to closing several times, despite Quentin Tarantino being the overall owner. That doesn't mean he has to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. You know, the American Cinematheque is at the Los Feliz 3. I don't know if they have all three screens, but I think they have like two of them. At least that gives you an opportunity to make your programming a little bit, I don't know, like diverse or something, but you can fall back onto something and gives you a little bit more flexibility where if we put a dog in there, that's bad for us. (laughs) You know, it's can't really overcome that. Now we have to like try to think like, okay, what can we do to make up like we're losing $5,000 by showing this one movie, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and there's 12 people here. This is bad. Doesn't matter. We still have to pay the studios their licensing fee. Now we're paying employees not to serve you popcorn or sell you tickets or monitor the show. I do not know how single screen theaters exist. While Jules is thankful that the new Bev is surviving, she says running a single-screen theater is both complicated and difficult in ways that chain theaters don't have to worry about. Well, B Corporation, obviously, you can, like, move your money around. At this theater, location B, you don't take a loss, and it's different. No place to hide for the single-screen theater, I'll tell you that much. Like in 2014, when we took over the New Beverly to pick up our trash, it was like $186. Now, $534. Yes, we do have to raise our ticket prices occasionally. And it's everything. It's clockwork. There's a certain vendor that sends a notice at the beginning of the year, a big vendor. We need to raise our prices 3 to 5%. I'm like, oh my gosh. But I don't pass that along to our patrons. I know other theaters don't do that either. Part of the movie-going experience is feeling like you're not being gouged. I go to a lot of theaters and I take pictures of their concession things, and I'm like, how in the world is this big theater, I will leave out a name, charging $4.75 for a small bottle of water? It's like, wow. The next big blow to small theaters was television. I think it was pretty damning to theater going. Well, I mean, all of a sudden, it was almost like a novelty, almost like, wow, you got this little screen and you can just like watch the Howdy Doody show. Oh my gosh, you can like, you can bring your meal and put it on a tray and you can watch from your own home. I don't think it was anything with economics. But I think it was just like, wow, we've got like a screen in our home. Now it's a little later than the movie screen, but there's always something on. And oh, wow, they're showing a John Wayne movie. Wow. And theaters had to overcome that. And they did. And then came streaming. Things like Netflix and Hulu. I asked Jules how the new Beverly survived the streaming era. Definitely attendance took a hit at the new Beverly we didn't come in until 2014, but the dynamics of movie exhibition have changed. 
bit. I, I, I think at least we've reached a point now where it's harmonious. Jules says streaming is probably her least favorite way to watch a movie. She says that at theaters, there's a kind of community you just don't get by flipping through Amazon Prime. It's so nice when people come to the new Beverly. Like, I'll tell you that the family matinee, we were playing Disney's The Barefoot Executive. I'm not interested in your theories on ratings, and I'm certainly not interested in doing a show called Abraham Lincoln's Doctor's Dog, whatever that is. And it was uh, directed by Robert Butler. He brought his grandchildren. Now the grandchildren get to see it on the big screen. They get to see the audience laughing. They get to see people coming up to their grandfather, Robert Butler, afterward and saying, oh, man, that was so cool. And that's so cool that you came out taking pictures by the one sheets and everything. Like, you don't get that experience at home. And that's actually one of the things I'm most proud about the new Beverly is that that we offer people that experience. And you don't have to be Robert Butler and his family to recognize, if you were at that screening, how important that is and how special that is. Like, yeah, I was just working the box office and it's like, that's pretty darn cool. You're not going to get that watching the movie on Netflix. But clearly, streaming isn't going anywhere. So this begs the question, can theaters and streaming services live harmoniously? I don't know if I ever see that they exist equally Harmoniously, I think you're seeing that now. I mean, we have a wonderful relationship with, say, Netflix. Netflix took over the Egyptian theater, so they will be showing their films there. There's a merger of theater and streaming. And I remember Netflix, at one point, was very resistant. But they saw the potential. They saw a wider audience. They saw that, hey... Academy Awards, you know, we get some of our films nominated, we win some Oscars, pretty darn cool. Luckily, there has been a movement in recent years to preserve the history-rich spaces like picture palaces and single-screen theaters. Quentin Tarantino, of course, saved the new Beverly from extinction, as well as the Vista Theater, also in Los Angeles. But finally, other filmmakers are also starting to step up. There's certainly the Paul Thomas Andersons and the Christopher Nolans. I don't think they have a foundation or do anything, but just by, you know, making film and insisting that, you know, it gets a theatrical run, that's important. Playing Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza was amazing. Do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. Sand. Sand, yeah, like sands, like the ocean, like beaches. Barbara Streisand? No, like stray sand. Sand. He brings his children to the New Beverly, to the family matinees. Amazing. That little bit of support. He pays. There's some people that are like, oh, oh can I get him free? I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, why? <laughs> so, do you work here? Because that's the perk of working here. Otherwise, please support us. Your friend of Quentin's? No, he wants you to pay. He wants you to support theaters. But in order to survive, small theaters need to be creative. And the New Beverly is a great example. When we took over the New Beverly, there wasn't much of a social media presence, but that was something I identified very quickly and that we needed somebody. And my social media manager, Phil Blankenship, came on board. And I think that has helped immensely. We would not be where we're at today without a social media presence. And honestly, a lot of it starts with community, too. You can cultivate a good film community. 
we have regulars, and so do other theaters, because I go to them, that will stand in line for like two or three hours before the show just to get their favorite seat or just to catch up with their friends. And you got to make it a movie-going experience, going back to affordable concessions, affordable ticket prices, good value for your screen. I love that Quentin put in pre-shows. Now folks are like, oh, well, what cartoon are you showing? Or what short? Or I like to write down the trailers, but I, what was the second trailer that you played? You get people excited to see the movie and, and you know that it, it's quality. Like we remodeled in 2018. And when we did that, we did some very simple upgrades. Speakers in the bathroom. I have never seen people go gaga over speakers in the bathroom, but you look at our social media and like, they put speakers in the bathroom. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. Gotta go get up, use the restroom. You're missing the visual aspect, but you can still kind of hear what's going on so you feel like you haven't missed everything. I mean, you just have to keep looking at different ways to get people engaged. Jules says that over time, the New Beverly became a trusted venue for cinephiles all across Southern California. What's really cool is... When we took over in 2014, you know, Quentin did the majority of the programming, and we just developed an audience, like a trust between Quentin, the programmer, and the audience. Like, you might not have heard this film, but I'm not going to play it if it's not good. You're going to get something out of that film. I love seeing black and white movies at the New Beverly. I think the New Beverly was built to play black and white movies. And I just love that we continue to find black and white movies to play that maybe we haven't shown before and that audiences are willing to take a chance on. As you can imagine, the COVID pandemic had a huge impact on theaters, especially on small theaters like the New Bev. But once they were able to pull through, it became obvious that people were craving the in-person movie-going experience. For better or worse, the pandemic reminded us that sitting at home isn't always the ideal way to watch a movie. At the end of the day, we're all human, and we need human interaction. You can only sit at home with, in front of your TV or computer screen for so long. The movie theater lets you have that interaction, even if you're not friends with somebody. I remember when I went to the Arclight and I saw Girls Trip, it was me and one other person. We were dying in that film, laughing out loud. And then afterwards, you know, talked just a few minutes for like, oh, that was crazy. And, and he's all like, I'm so glad you're in the theater and I wasn't the only one laughing alone. I'm like, I know it was so cool to hear you laughing and just having that experience. It wasn't the full theater, everybody laughing out loud, but we had that moment. That moment, I still remember years later. You don't gotta get that experience at home. Maybe if you have your friends over and you're watching a movie and great, it's a good time and stuff, but it's, I don't know, it's not the same as going out. It's not the same as interacting. Interacting with strangers where you have this one common thing together. And I'll go back to that story of the New Bev regular Sarah. It's like she's made friends there. We've all made friends at the New Beverly. We're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to take a tour of the New Beverly and we'll see or rather hear, the ins and outs of running analog film on a projector. Jules McLean 
director of operations for the New Beverly Cinema, was kind enough to offer me a tour of the theater. We walked through the lobby, the auditorium, and I got the special experience of seeing the projection room. So we're in the lobby of the New Beverly Cinema right now, and when Quentin took over the business uh, part of the the cinema, uh, we made a few changes but kept a, a lot of stuff intact. One of the big things that really made the lobby what it is today, not that it's a, it's a tiny lobby, but there was a, a small wall partition uh, by the women's room, and we were probably a week away from opening and finishing construction, and, and Quentin came in, and he's all like, do we really need this wall? And luckily, the contractor happened to be right there, too, and he's all, it's not a load-bearing wall, and we can get rid of it. The next day, we got rid of it, um, and it just, A, opened up the lobby, but Really, what Quentin wanted to do with the wall being gone, it, it, it opened up wall space so we can now have large, oversized uh, frames that we put French two panels in and Italian um, oversized posters in. And that's, that's actually two of the biggest things that I liked that Quentin did was not only removing the partition, but saying, hey, I want oversized frames in, and I want the frames changed out every, you know, three or four days or whatever we do to, to advertise um, a movie. He has a, a, a lovely um, uh, poster collection, so we utilize a lot of that, and over the years, we've amassed a nice collection. Um, so it, it's nice, and people love taking pictures in front of it and, and stuff like that. So what else? It's the original box office. We still have the um, original ticket tape puncher that the Torgans had. And, uh, you know, we have gone to an online type of ticketing service. However, we still kind of punch out the old tickets. And, you know, they almost look like carnival tickets, but they say New Beverly on them. And it's kind of cool. I always like seeing, you know, people like post them, you know, pictures of them on social media and by the marquee and stuff. And, you know, the concession stand, it's small but mighty. Uh, we pack a lot in there. Great ideas is that when we showed um, Okja, the Netflix film, we, um, because it was very, you know, animal rights, we brought in vegan dogs for that and we called them Okja dogs. They sold so well, we've kept them to this day. So again, always looking for interesting things. I love the poster, just the, the one-sheet posters. Some of the artwork on the posters is gorgeous. They don't make them like they used to. It's very true. I mean, look at that Goldfinger poster. It kicks yeah, ass. Yeah. I love it. One thing we did when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood opened is we decked out the lobby and a lot of the props, which you will still see to this day. We didn't take them down. Make Love, Not War sign is over there. Cielo Drive is above the women's room and on the box office. We had only candy that would have been sold in 1969, only bottled soda that would have been sold in 1969. We did like fun stuff like candy cigarettes and everything. We had walk-in music that was, you know, very specific to, you know, KHJ that was playing in the film, but it was actually, you know, an on-air broadcast. So now we're in the auditorium of the New Beverly. We seat 225. In 2018, we had to completely gut everything. What was nice about the remodel was that we were able to do some really small things that I think just made the theater even more special. People don't know what we did because you can't see it, but 
we did new curtains, but we kept the same color scheme. So we have big blue panel of curtains right here and on the side curtains, and then we have a little strip of red. Well, that was reversed. It was big panels of red, little strips of um, blue. But underneath it now, we have acoustic material. So it really makes the sound oh special. Another thing that um, helped us, because we had to like tear down the roof, now we have acoustic paneling in the roof. Honestly, I'm gonna brag here. It's some of the best sound in Los Angeles. I was watching, I'll, I'll use Quentin's movie again, because it's his theater, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And my manager, Brian Quinn, had the same experience. We both saw the film other places, but during the Musso and Frank scene, like you could hear you know, the tables talk and everything, so much so that both of us at one point or another turned around and looked like, who's talking in the theater? Oh, no one's talking. That's the, that's the background noise of Musso and Frank's. Oh, our sound is good. You don't get that at every theater because I've watched Quentin's movie at other theaters and I, I did not have that experience. So the seats, you know, they're not the greatest seats in the world. They're not the worst seats in the world. I don't know if we'll ever change them, maybe, but I just feel that we would lose some seating capacity if we, we, we went to some newer seats, and we certainly wouldn't go into any seats that recline or anything like that. That's not us. That's for another theater. Things that Quentin did is he wanted, again, oversized posters as you exit, so you can see. We've got two of them. We have one, Nebraska Jim, which is a fake movie in, in Quentin's film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then we have Richard Gere's Breathless. We can go upstairs to the booth. Coming up, gentlemen. Well, you're in sacred territory now. Here it is in all its glory. To your right, we have a wall of trailers, 35 millimeter trailers we use in our pre-shows. The first feature always has a cartoon or a short and then followed by trailers. They're either thematic that they tie into the feature you're about to see or they're up and coming. They also have like intermission tags or adverts from England. I mean, we've got a thousand of them, but you'll see that in the show too. It's like Oh, Dr. Pepper, Martian snack bar, whatever, you know, just a little bumper, and then it'll go into the cartoon or the trailers. And we have our Simplex XL projectors. They're dual projectors. We have no platter system at the New Beverly. When Quentin took over and put me in charge, they kept telling me, like, we had a periscope system, so the light would hit a mirror and then hit another mirror and then be shot onto the screen. It wasn't a crisp image, so I'm like, there's got to be a way. So I pulled Quentin's personal projectionist, Jeff Nowicki. He got his friend over here who used to work for Fox, and you got to chop off the base. You can chop off the base, and then you'll have a straight shot to the screen. And lo and behold, the image improved. It was, I guess it's a little hard for the projectionist because they have to stoop down. That's why you see the chair is very low. But it is absolutely worth it. David, yeah. this is our uh, chief projectionist, David Chen. So he'll explain a little bit how that works much better than I could. Yeah, uh, we start off with the reel up here, and then we thread down towards the take-up. 
As it passes through different rollers, you'll notice straight away that the potentially the first section it'll pass through is the uh, Dolby Digital Reader. The SRD track would be read through this component. But if it's an older print and only has one channel or standard stereo sound, we would bypass that entirely. And it would just go down through here into the uh, gate where obviously light passes through and into the lens. Then it goes down further to the sound head. What's notable about that, and what I think most people are surprised to learn, is that if you're looking at a frame of film on 35 millimeter, the sound for that frame is 20 frames ahead of it. So for example, you have an image that's starting here. If you were to run film and have it pause, if you were to catch that instance, the sound for that image is already passing through 20 frames later down here into the sound head. It continues from there to these other two rollers and then down into take up. We use 2000 foot reels which means that we can really, like, truly handle prints in the safest way. I'm going to actually remove this anyways, but we can unscrew this, and then we have a multitude of lenses. You can see here, this is our 137 lens, which is common for older Hollywood aspect ratio or for cartoons that we're able to run for our pre-shows. We could do scope, we could do 185, we could do the European 166. It opens it up so we can play a good variety of movies and uh, shorts. What, what kind of preparation do you have to do with these? in order to like get them ready to play on the projector? I mean, if they're in good shape, you probably just need, you know, an hour, hour and a half of inspection. But if we're getting something from Quentin's collection that hasn't played in 20 years, could it be very brittle now? So you could have to like reinforce splices. I know films that have taken eight hours to repair just so we can get it through the projectors. Typically though, if it's not in great shape, it might take about four hours, which is very labor intensive. Trust me, not at all cost effective. So it takes a lot to run a film only house. I don't know how many films that we run a year, but it's, what do you think, Dave? It's at least 800, right? Yeah, because I know for uh, like three, three months in a row now, we're averaging about 40 features uh, a month. Man. So. Which means in your warehouse, you must have like, how many canisters of film? Like, Well over 5,000. The joke is the uh, final shot of Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's how it feels emotionally. Just endless amounts of film. We actually have a print traffic manager because it gets so busy. And we're lucky that we're in Los Angeles that we can actually physically go to a lot of the places and pick up the film. We keep copies of all our pre-shows. There's print reports for every print that's been inspected. Now we do store a lot of that online in, in Dropbox, but we keep everything. So we're a repertory cinema, so chances are it could get played again. It might be the same print. At least having the print report might cut down on some of the work. Um, and you had mentioned it might be possible to do like a brief demo if that's not too much trouble. Yeah, do you think you could just thread something up so we can get sound bites of the... Um... Sure, I guess I could throw on the pre-show. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Scope lens in there, changing the focus to scope. It's ready to be threaded. Now we start the day with giving the projectors a nice cleaning. When we initially start off, we thread to a point that's 11 feet before the first frame of image. In this case, there's a drunk driving PSA that precedes the coming attractions tag. Usually have at least 18 feet of head leader, so we'll have enough to put onto the take-up reel without worrying about any shortage. Like that. Perfect. 
So I guess I can fire up the uh, lamp houses and then uh, it'll be ready for showtime. Look who's here. When the action is too rough for one man, send for Savano's Seven. First of all, it's no ordinary cleanup job. Once we take out one of those bananas, we gotta wipe out the rest of them in 30 minutes. If we're gonna get this thing done, we're gonna get it done quick. Savano's Seven, the Playmate, the Black Belt, the Dragster, the Comic, the Professor, the Cowboy, Seven, Death is their way of life, Seven. Looked and sounded good. <laughs> No problem. Yeah, thank you so much. That was super cool. Can I say one thing? Um, obviously, if you come to Los Angeles, would love everybody to visit the new Beverly and stuff. But Los Angeles in particular has the Broadway Theater District that just has beautiful picture palaces from like the Orpheum, the Los Angeles, the Million Dollar Theater, which uh, is home to some of the secret movie club screenings. It's just wonderful. And, and the Grand Central Market is down there. You can make a whole day of it. Even if you don't go on the tour, it's just nice walking up and down Broadway, starting at 3rd, kind of going all the way down to 9th, and just seeing the rich history. And There's some amazing stuff here and in other parts of the country, and applaud everybody that's kind of keeping the movie theaters alive. This episode of Ephemeral was written and produced by Trevor Young, with producers Max and Alex Williams. Jules McLean is the director of operations at the New Beverly Cinema, and David Chen is the lead projectionist at the New Bev. Big thanks to Quentin Tarantino for the behind-the-scenes pass into his theater, and for all the work he does to preserve film culture. We'd love to hear from you about your favorite theaters. Is there a special or historic theater in your city? What do you love about the movie-going experience? Let us know on social media. We're at Ephemeral Show. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs>